All right, last week before Thanksgiving break, right? Um, real quick, we're going to do a, um, a big social activity tomorrow night. And uh, Lindsay, we were just talking a little bit about it, and there's a lot of schedule conflicts and other such things. And so we're going to actually move it from tomorrow night to Thursday the 12th. We had SLM scheduled, and that's, that's finals week. That's the last Thursday of the year. So most people already have Thursdays clear on their schedule. So instead of um, uh, having um, SLM, we're going to do something just where everyone kind of gets together and spends an evening uh, kind of getting to know one another a little bit beyond just what you have in your small group. So December 12th, last Thursday of the semester from tomorrow night. We're just shifting it back. Gives everyone a little bit more time to get it into their schedule. Um, since you were going to be here for SLM anyway, we'll expect your attendance at that as well. All right, well, I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you again for your word that uh, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And um, Father, as we go throughout this semester, we ask you to bring to light your word to our minds that we might, we might think more like you, we might become more holy, and uh, that you would lead us into the life and the potential that you have for us. We love you. Amen. All right, so last, um, last few weeks we have spent some time on some challenging uh, topics. Um, I'm really glad that we did. We'll continue to do so. Next semester will be probably even more full of um, things that are, are difficult to look at, that uh, there's a lot of disparity of opinion um, concerning. Those are the things that I really want to go after with this group. And um, so we've been talking about relationships, talking about marriage and family and children. And so before we got into um, the issue of abortion, we were, we were talking about kids and viewing kids as a blessing, if you guys remember. Um, speaking of which, there's a new one visiting us uh, this evening, a new attendee. We love new uh, SLM enrollees. <laughs> so getting them started young, that's what we like. And Josh, you know, Josh is here. And so uh, we, we spent a lot of time really examining how we view children in light of God's heart towards kids. And at least I was extremely challenged by um, that week and uh, in the Lord just revealing things that I didn't like in my own heart about how I uh, look at, view, treat children. And so now that we view children as um, you know, beautiful, powerful, and uh, destined persons, um, we're going to talk about the need to beat them. And uh, No, I'm kidding. We're going to talk about discipline. guys are weird. Um, I already know I'm weird. I didn't know if you guys knew you were yet, but it's okay. So we're going to talk about discipline. So um, most importantly, had to be established a heart position for children that is appropriate and in line with how God views them. Uh, They're not an interruption. 
Um, they're not a hassle. Children are um, always a blessing in Scripture, and I'm sure you guys all remember the, that week, and if not, it's on SoundCloud now, so you can go back and listen to it. But with that foundation, we can't uh, raise children, spiritual or natural, in light of allowing them to run roughshod over everything and everyone. And so we're going to talk about discipline, and we're going to talk about it this week, not so much in the context of a parent disciplining a natural child, but we're going to look at it as all of us experience discipline individually as God disciplines us. And from that posture, then we will look at the overflow into family and spiritual uh, parenting and and child-rearing as well. You guys tracking with me? So some of us, you know, some of us don't have children yet. Um, Some of you don't have even spiritual children yet. And um, so you may not be able to translate some of the topics of discipline. So we're going to look at it as we receive discipline first and foremost, and then once we've, we've done that, we'll step into the next round. So our hope with S- SLM, we've talked about this a couple times, is to pr- present to each of you the way of living according to Scripture and Scripture as it was experienced in our own lives. That does not remove experience from Scripture and put that over Scripture. What I mean is, We want to express and present to each person in SLM both the Scripture and the Scripture as it was experienced as a testimony walking with God in our own lives. We're going to do that in such a manner that it will best position you to experience the fullest potential for which God created you. So as I said last week, um, when something's presented, what's being presented is this is how we see God saying is the best way to live. What you do with that is completely up to you. It's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to present it, attempt to persuade you, but it's up to you how you respond. Uh, You may not agree with everything I say, but as long as God does, I'm okay and I'm happy. Um, Of course, obviously, I want the best for each person in the room, as do each of your leaders. Um... But more importantly, I hope the way you think throughout this semester, throughout this year, and your entire experience with us is being completely challenged. If you come here and you spend a year with us, two years with us, four years with us, and nothing about the way that you think is challenged, we did not do a very good job at all. At all. And so when I have people asking me questions and upset and frustrated and angry and that's a really good sign to me because it means that how you have thought your entire life is being challenged and it's forcing you to examine why you think what you think. You following? Does that, does that make sense? So when you are asking, why do I think what I think? Because what he's saying is infuriating me and I wanted to kill him for a week. I'm okay with that, but what I hope is that you don't go running to another person to validate your thought process, but rather you run to the Scripture and to the Lord, and you get in front of them and say, you need to tell me how to think. 
And if he tells you something that's contradictory to what you hear from me, that's great. I'll repent. But my hope is that the way you think and have lived is completely challenged in every way. Why? Because none of us are yet living in the fullness of what Christ created us to live in. Which means each one of us, individually and all of us collectively, are walking together on a process of discipline, continual and constant, where God is teaching us, training us, and instructing us to make us think more like him, become more holy, know him more deeply, and live more like Christ in the earth. So if nothing you think is being challenged, we're not doing a very good job. Because either that or you've already arrived. And since the Apostle Paul hadn't, I think a couple of us have a little ways to go. So now, looking at discipline, the beautiful thing about discipline. There's a lot of beautiful things about discipline. But one of the greatest things about discipline when we're in a setting like this, it applies to everyone all the time. Because none of us are yet in the fullness of Christ. So we are all, each of us, in a time of discipline. Now, how we view discipline is often skewed. And so we could go, I'm not in a time of discipline, I'm in a time of blessing. This is great, I'm not in trouble for anything. You're still being disciplined as long as you're being changed and growing in holiness and, and transformed into the likeness of Christ. That is discipline as well. So question, don't have to raise your hands because I don't want I don't want to know. How many of you guys read your Bible this week? So did anyone need to repent after reading their Bible? So did anyone read the scripture and have to repent? Okay, nobody. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that's great. That's discipline. Repentance is discipline. Repentance is our response to discipline, more accurately stated. Even if it means a good type of repentance. What do I mean by good type of repentance? Is everybody in here really good at receiving compliments and encouragement? You are? Good. We can target her later. (laughs) A lot of people aren't. We're not comfortable receiving compliments and encouragement. So we need discipline to make us more able to receive compliments, encouragement, and upbuilding. We need discipline. How many of you guys are really good at accepting love and appreciation? You're just really good at it. Well, we need discipline to become better at receiving love. So sometimes we might, re- we might read the scripture and we come across something that says to the effect of, as God loved the Son, so does he love us, like he does in John. And we go, what? No. That was Jesus. That's discipline. Because we are having to change the way that we think and the way that we feel 
and it's producing in us holiness and knowledge of God and more likeness of Christ. This is what discipline is. So I hope that we are able to read the scripture and repent and be disciplined as we do. Exchanging unloved for loved and ashes for beauty. But also exchanging wrong thinkings that are destructive and damaging for better ones. If you're reading the scripture and you're not repenting, and nothing that you read is causing you to be convicted in an awareness that you need to change the way you think, since we're not Jesus and living like him, then we're reading the scripture wrong. And we're reading the scripture with a thought process that says, I'm evaluating what it says in judging the scripture and deciding whether or not I like this portion or I'm going to rip it out. And the challenge to us is when we get in the word is to come to it saying, God, I want to be changed. I want you to change the way I think. I want you to change the way I feel. I want to read the Bible and not be able to get through a chapter without you showing me something about me that you want to make more like you. That's the heart position from which we need to study the word. But the tendency is to read the word from the heart position that says, I'm not real big on this part. I mean, is this not really applicable to me today? And I just, I'm not there. And I don't like that. And so I'm going to skip all but the book of Matthew. And, you know, there's 65 books I don't really need because I like this one right now. And that's typically how we read the scripture. We go to it and we evaluate it and we decide if it justifies the way we want to live. And so that has to change. So where I want to start is Hebrews 12. And I'm actually going to read the first uh, few, few verses so you can go there if you've got your Bible open. Follow along. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 1. So... Keep in mind here, because the context for this is really important. Hebrews 12. What was Hebrews 11? Does anyone remember? The faith chapter. Hebrews 11 has in it the heroes of our faith, the legends. It's the the hall of fame of Christendom. These are the ones that did the great things in, for, with God. It's the faith chapter. And coming out of the faith chapter, where does he transition? He doesn't come out of the faith chapter and go, so go do whatever you want to do. Woo! He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Right away, he's telling them, you've got to change the way you think. Throw off the things that are hindering you and the sin that's entangling you. You've got to change. How we are is not going to get us into the hall of fame. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? Wait, I'm going to read that one again. Have you completely forgot this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addressing his son? And the next thing is the word of encouragement. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. It's a word of encouragement. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. It's a word of encouragement. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. If we are not being disciplined, we are illegitimate children. What that means is, if we're not being disciplined, we have stepped out of sonship under the Father, and we are not permitting Him to discipline us, and so we've made ourselves effectively orphans. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. Discipline is a mark of His love. He chastens everyone He accepts as a son. Discipline is our assurance that He is committed to us becoming like him and experiencing the fullness of the potential for which he created us. That's what discipline is. It's a word of encouragement. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. So he's having to tell them now that discipline's big. It's big. And discipline is a sign of love. So when the Lord's challenging your heart and he's showing you things in the word, it's discipline, it's encouragement. Be encouraged. He's committed to you. He's showing you he loves you. Then he goes on to say progressively that, oh yeah, when it's hardship, that's discipline. So endure, disip- endure hardship as discipline. How many of us think of discipline as anything other than hardship? We've, we've jumped so far to the opposite side of the fence that we have a hard time viewing discipline as anything other than hardship. Oh, I'm suffering, or I don't, I'm not having a good time. We don't understand that discipline is more than just hardship. We've minimized discipline to, well, if I'm not in a really difficult time, I'm not, I'm not being disciplined. We're always being disciplined. Our blessing is discipline. It's changing us into his likeness, his image, that we might reflect his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, this is in the Bible, if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're, you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So if we're not being disciplined, what that means is we have made a choice to step away from our Father's demonstration of love in a word of encouragement that he is committed to us to make us like him. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? Exclamation point in the Bible. It is through our submission to God's discipline that we experience abundance of life. 
They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. If we respond poorly to discipline, we're made lame, we're broken, we're made crippled. It's destructive. But when we respond appropriately, it leads to our healing. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, for who, a single me- who for a single meal sold his inheritance writes as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Why would he bring up Esau in the chapter about discipline? He brings up Esau in the chapter about discipline because Esau took the pleasure of what he wanted in that moment in exchange for what God would have given him had he held out and endured until the Lord put him there. He traded, what I, this is what I want right now. Well, I'll give you what you want right now, but you've got to give me what God's got for you down the road. And he exchanged it. In a moment. Are you guys tracking that? When God comes to us in a disciplinary situation, and it's not what we want, when we say, no, God, I don't want your discipline. I want what makes me feel good now. In exchange for that, we are endangering the potential we have in God. Esau, even though he sought His blessing back with repentance could not get it. When we endanger our destiny is the time where God comes with discipline and we say, no, I want this now instead. And our destiny is endangered, as was Esau's. That's why Esau is in the disciplinary chapter. So like I said, the cool thing about discipline in a setting like this, we're all in it together. If you're not, please repent because you're showing that you've chosen to be an orphan rather than a son or a daughter and a part of the family. So the great thing about discipline is everybody in the room understands it with you. They're all going through it together. We all need discipline as the point of it is to transform us into the likeness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's transforming us from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. Discipline, as stated in Hebrews 12, is an act of love. That's a hard one to get our arms around. And it's a hard one to demonstrate often. I think it's harder with children to demonstrate it, because it's sometimes harder to view a, a little kid as a, as a, uh, a person as much as a, an adult. So it's easier just to discipline them and be done with it. And, um, but discipline is an act of love. I remember my dad, um, I don't know why, but my dad, 
he really understood in parenting the father's heart for discipline. And it, he didn't experience it in his life as a son. So I have no idea, but by the grace of God, that he did. But I remember I would do some really awful things. I spent probably the first three years as a Christian repenting to my brother for all the evil things that I'd done as an older brother, like holding him down and spitting in his face and, you know, all the other normal things that older brothers do to torment their younger siblings. Which is really handy now with all the little kids running around. Because I know exactly what all the oldest children are going to do to their little brothers and sisters, and I catch them all the time. My sister and her husband, who were both the youngest in their family, completely clueless to what the oldest kids are doing still. (laughs) So I get to be the law enforcement. Anyway, so my dad really had a good handle on parenting and fathering and discipline. And um, my dad would, we would go and have a conversation before I got spanked, and we would have a conversation before this happened. And you ever hear the the old phrase that they throw on? It hurts me more than it hurts you, you know. And we all laugh about that. Yeah, right. You know, it's, my dad would actually weep when we'd have these conversations, and I'd get spanked. He, there were times where he'd actually cry, and I was like, "Wow, it does hurt you more than it hurts me," because. It didn't hurt anymore. <laughs> you know, it still stung, but there wasn't pain like he was experiencing having to do it. And we would have conversations. He would say, do you understand why this is happening? Yeah. Do you understand why? I ha-? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the worst disciplinary moment of my entire life, I was like 12 years old. I was old enough so it, sp- you know, it didn't, didn't hurt anymore. You know, you could, i get spanked and it was like, I'm 12 years old, you can't hurt me, you know, 12 years old, you're a grown man, right, and um, so I'm 12, and you can't hurt me, and so my dad comes in one day, and I had, I had convinced my brother to say something really coarse to my mom, involving the female anatomy, um, so he got in trouble for that until they found out that I'd put him up to it, and so I waited all day for my dad to get home, and um, he takes me in the in the back bedroom and, um, you know, do you know why? Yeah, I know. I, you know, you manipulated your brother. Yeah, that's fairly normal. Yeah, I know. And um, he's like, okay, well, I've got to got to discipline you. And so he takes off his belt, and then he takes off his shirt, and he hands me the belt, and he gets down on his hands and knees. He's like, okay, go ahead, you gotta spank me. And I completely fell apart. And I'm, I'm sobbing, you know, trying to spank him on the bare flesh. And, and he got up and he said, do you understand what this is about? And I was like, obviously, <laughs> I sure do, you know. And uh, he just said, uh, regardless of the discipline, you have to understand the redemption comes for the substitute of Jesus being, being disciplined, being punished for us. And he said, so you have to understand that discipline is just causing you to grow as a son. It's not qualifying you as a son. It's helping you grow and change as a son. And it was just, it stuck with me. It changed, changed me. Um, understanding discipline as an act of love that way. Discipline is for our good or for the good of the recipient. Discipline does not benefit God in any way other than making us more like him. 
It's for our good. However, God enjoys the disciplinary process. He enjoys us while we're struggling. That's a really difficult thing for, for many of us, for me to get my brain around, is that when I'm not there yet, God's enjoying me in spite of that. And I view discipline as God's intent to fix me and get me there. Well, that's a part of it. But discipline is God's intimate, interactive involvement in the process of changing me to be like him, but he enjoys the process. He enjoys meeting us where we are, not to leave us there, but to be with us as we change and as we grow. And he enjoys the process. He enjoys the imperfection. He enjoys when we struggle and when we, we, we fail and get up and keep moving. He's not afraid of that. He enjoys it. That's hard, I think, for most of us to understand. I struggled. I messed up. But you got up. You kept going. You looked at me when you failed. You didn't look away and hide. You sought me when you struggled. You didn't go back to your old vices. Those are things that God enjoys being a part of as we're disciplined and as we change and as we grow. I'm convinced one of the most admirable traits from God's perspective of a son or a daughter is their willingness to acknowledge their wrong, repentance and say, God, I, I want to do this different, even in the midst of failure. God enjoys the process. We should too. It's sometimes hard, especially when we're enduring hardship as discipline. It can be very hard to enjoy that. We enjoy it through our nearness to him, not through the pleasure of the circumstance. We can find enjoyment in a difficult circumstance through the nearness to God, but it's not going to come because our circumstances make us feel nice. We're human. Discipline is intended to allow us to share in the holiness of the Lord. And of course, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So without discipline, there is no holiness. That's what Hebrews 12 is saying. And without holiness, no one sees the Lord. So if you're not being disciplined, you're not hearing clearly from God. Are you seeing the the inference? So how does discipline happen? Well, discipline happens through his voice or his word. It doesn't, that doesn't mean that uh, it's one or the other. It's both. He will discipline us or challenge the way that we think and the way that we feel through his voice. That could be while we read the scripture. That could be in a dream. That could be that prompting, that awareness that, wow, this something's not right. Um, I've had times where I was in the scripture and I could not get through a verse without being, oh, wow, I, uh, and God's challenging us and he's changing us. And I couldn't get through a single verse without having him bring up something that needed changing. And it wasn't, you naughty boy. It often was, wow, 
you think far more of me than I ever could have considered possible. That, for me, is far more difficult than the discipline I've done something wrong. We'll get there in a second. So his word is sharper than a two-edged sword. If we read the scripture and it does not challenge the way we think or live, then we have, we're reading it from a wrong heart position like we discussed earlier. Discipline also happens through circumstance. We've talked about that. Could be hardship, could be blessing, could be any number of things. God will discipline us both vocally and circumstantially. It's like a child. I have two drastically different children. Um, you know, Elisa, if I have to be so careful because if I, if my tone changes too much when I talk to her, she just like, I mean, she's just completely like, she's so voice sensitive. And so that's all she needs is just a talking to. And so I've got to sit down with her and really take the time to explain things to her and not inflect anything in my tone at all. And really just kind of explain, you know, what was wrong and what she's got to do different. And, okay, Dad, and she'd give me a kiss and a hug every time. Now, Yaya, um, a bullhorn, uh, an electric shock collar have not worked yet. Just kidding. Just kidding. Getting on the shock collar. No, but this, the Eliah does not respond to anything vocally, virtually, although in the last couple of weeks, by some miracle of God, um, I've had a couple conversations with her, and she'll go, okay, Dad, and walk away. And I don't know if she really listens or not, but, but she needs circumstantial discipline where I'll go, now, Eliah, you're going to have to make a choice. And your choice drastically affects what's going to happen when you make this choice. Now, you can sit down and eat your dinner, and then, you know, you can have a treat after dinner, and you and Elisa can play, and da-da-da-da. Or you cannot eat your dinner, and you're going to have to go in your crib because we need you to eat your dinner. Okay, Dad. And she'll climb up on the chair and eat. So she needs circumstantial understanding that says, if I choose this, it's going to be bad, and if I choose this, it's going to be good. Whereas Elisa, she just needs a conversation, and she gets it at least at this point. She's only three and a half. Um, so my point is that discipline happens in different ways. With God, I ask the Lord, God, I want to be voice sensitive. <laughs> I, just, I want to be voice sensitive. If I'm doing something wrong, please speak to me, because I'd rather not have to go through any more deserts than I have to. You know, I don't want to be Joseph in prison for seven years if I can do it in one. I, don't, I think that's okay. <laughs> I want to be voice sensitive, God. But he will use circumstance. And often what happens, he uses circumstance, and he's trying to change us in our circumstance, but we try to change the circumstance because the pain is too great. Stay in the circumstance when discipline comes. You get changed, then you get delivered. But if you leave the circumstance before he's changed you, you're just running away, and you're creating an illegitimate situation for yourself. I don't think discipline is always through a bad circumstance either. Personally, this is just me, and I think that it's, it's more than just me. I think it applies to... A lot of people, um, for some reason, in the upper Midwest, 
I know that's a broad generalization. But um, it's a lot more difficult. Let me say it this way first. I am a lot more comfortable having the Lord tell me, you're doing this wrong, 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 you need to do this better, you need to work harder here, you need to get this fixed up. You got to, where it's, I feel like he's my coach, right, my trainer. You know, you're in sports, and so you always got a coach who you know cares about you because he wants to win, and, you know, you're going to help him win. So he's working with you, and he's like, okay, dude, you know, when you're out there and you're, you're trying to catch a pass or you're trying to do this or this, you got to do this instead of this, and okay. So I, I'm okay with that side of things. If God wants to tell me I'm doing something wrong, I'm good with that. Just tell me. That's maybe not true for everybody, but for me, that's the way it is. I'm, I've, I struggle far more when God wants to tell me I'm doing things well. I'm really valuable to him. He really trusts me. He wants to know my opinion on things. I struggle with that. So for me, it's more difficult to be in a disciplinary situation of blessing and favor than it is of doing something wrong and difficulty. I'd say it like this. For me, the crucifixion is more doable than the resurrection. It's hard, but it's disciplinary. I find myself weeping with being afraid to go where he's wanting to take me in a, in a season of good circumstantial discipline than with bad circumstantial discipline. So there's also a saying, I forget who it was, it was Tozer or um, Os- Oswald Chambers or whatever, but it's, it's pretty interesting. For every 100 men that will pass the test of adversity, only one will pass the test of success. So he's saying discipline comes in a variety of formats. It comes through adversity and difficulty, and it also comes through success. And the test of success is often not viewed as discipline, so many don't pass because they don't understand that they need to walk uprightly and respond accordingly, even though everything is seemingly going well and God's not dealing with me about anything. And I bring that up to say, some of us get really good at, oh, God's dealing with me in this. And they're always in trouble with God. Oh, God's, you know, I'm, I'm being convicted of this, and I'm being convicted of this. And an identity is created in this thing of I'm not good enough. And we never allow ourselves to enter into, hey, God encouraged me. God told me he's proud of me. So for many, it's easy to identify as a disciplined son instead of as an enjoyed son. Like I said earlier, I think discipline is anything that God does in us and to us that changes us to become more like Christ. I think anything that stretches us and makes us grow is disciplinary. So I started asking myself some questions. Why don't we respond well to discipline? Some people do. Great. And if that's you, just keep doing it. But so why don't we at times respond well to discipline? Envy is one. Um, I want or I think this is best. And so God will come and he'll, he'll start to discipline us. And he'll say, this is the direction I want you to go. And he starts pushing us through people around us or maybe in the scripture 
or someone tells you something that they think and you start scrambling, God, I don't want that. I don't, I don't like that idea. And you start scrambling and often first response is, I'm going to go find someone who will tell me what I want to hear. I'm going to go find someone to agree with me because I think that in agreement, then I don't have to respond to God's discipline. And this is happening out of envy because it's an I want thing instead of what God wants. And we respond poorly to discipline because it hurts. At times it hurts. As humility develops, discipline hurts. Why? Because we've got to acknowledge that we've been wrong. Humility in the development of humility is painful. So discipline develops humility, and that process is often painful because we have to learn to admit we're wrong and that we made a mistake. One of the great gifts a person can be is teachable. Meaning... You're willing to take the initiative and try something, but you're willing to make a second decision when you find out you were wrong in your first. I read a really cool article called The Second Decision, and the guy was expressing the first decision's good because that's where you take initiative and you, you move forward, you make a decision, but the second decision is often better. Because when you make the first, you've got to be willing to evaluate it and say, did I make the right choice? Was I right or was I wrong? And the second decision is where you evaluate that and you're willing to say, no, I was wrong and I've got to go in a different direction. That's the development of humility, is being able to take initiative, be aggressive, go for it, move forward, but also in an instant when you discover you were wrong about something, change the way that you think, the way that you act, acknowledge that you did wrong, and change direction. We don't respond well to discipline because we have a misunderstanding of grace. I believe that grace is probably the most frequently misrepresented, misrepresented and uh, wrongly spoken of topic in Scripture today in our country. Grace. Grace allows us, this is out of Romans. Grace allows us to be victorious and is intended to change us. Grace allows us to be wrong and to change, not to be wrong and stay the same way and get our way. Grace does. We have a tendency... To think that we have to be perfect, to misunderstand grace, and to think that we've got to be perfect. And then then because of that, we convince ourselves that we are perfect, and everything about the way we think is perfect, and then we refuse to acknowledge wrong thinking or wrongdoing, and we we just create uh, an inescapable circle and cycle for ourselves because we misunderstand grace. And what I say by misunderstand grace is, in the context of community, We talk about grace a lot and giving people grace and grace, 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 grace. But we view it in a non-authoritarian context where grace in community just means everyone's the same. Nobody's in authority, so no one can discipline anyone else and nobody can say anyone else was wrong. We all just kind of go along together and nobody's any difference because nobody is any different. Nobody changes. Nobody grows 
because we're all just offering each other grace. That's not biblical community. It's a misunderstanding of grace that says, I'm supposed to just leave you where you are and be fine with it. That's not grace. We can do that with non-Christians, but that's not the church. Jesus, the Father, did not meet us and leave us where we were. His name is Jealous. So God, as a loving Father, does not leave us where he found us, nor where we are. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So in the context of community, likewise, it's not supposed to be non-authoritarian. It's supposed to be real grace where we benefit one another by causing, provoking one another to growth, to more holiness, to more likeness of Christ. Iron sharpening iron. We don't respond well to discipline often because of pride. I just know more than they do. I mean, I know, I mean, I know, like, I don't know, Ryan, he was talking to me about this stuff, but he just doesn't know what I know. And, I mean, I've, like, I've read books and, I mean, stuff. And, I mean, who is he really? I mean, he's just, what does he know? Pride. I know more than they do. And not only is it in regard to leaders, but it's also in regard to God. We would never say this, well, eh, my way is better than God's way, because we're evangelicals and we don't say stuff like that. But we act in such a manner that implies it. Here's what the scripture says. Not really feeling that one. Just going to kind of leave that one where it is, and I'll go on to the other parts that I like better. So that's pride, and that's why discipline is painful, is because there's pride, and we're developing humility as we acknowledge that we are wrong. We struggle with it because we have a lack of trust. We don't trust his leadership when he disciplines us. Essentially, that's the core issue, right? Discipline happens, and we think God has somehow lost us in the big picture, and he's, he's, he doesn't have track of us. And, and, and what Discipline comes, and we push rather than pull near. And discipline is meant to cause us to pull near to God, draw closer to him, and allow him to walk us through because we trust his leadership. But we often push away from God because we don't trust his leadership. And it's because when we don't understand, we often won't obey. That's why everybody's favorite verse is trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. But when we don't understand, we don't like to trust in the Lord. Because you're not going where I want you to or where I thought you would. Or this is harder than I thought it was going to be. I just want it to stop. I'm pulling away because I can't handle it anymore. I just don't understand it. Trust in the Lord and lean not on on your own understanding. God, I don't understand this. This is not where I thought you were going to take me. This is not what I thought three months ago. I would have cursed up and down about how foolish this was, and yet I'm going to keep going because I know this is where you're taking me. 
We have a lack of trust because we allow our feelings to govern our faith. Faith is not governed by feelings. Our faith affects our feelings, but should never be governed by our feelings. What does that mean? This, things we, this means we tend to avoid things that make us feel bad. So at times, we must go through something that we don't like to come into the good that the Lord intends for us. Sometimes that good happens in this life, and sometimes it doesn't. I don't get to pick and choose, and, and neither do you, for your own life, whether you enter into that good land in the land of the living, as did David, or in eternity. Either way, it's going to be better than you could have thought. But again, have an eternal focus. But we tend to avoid things that make us feel bad. Okay, God, I'm not feeling like this is a good idea. I don't like how this makes me feel. Who in the world ever said that what was right and wrong was somehow governed and dictated by what we feel? Good heavens! Thank God that the truth is not affected by what I feel like when I wake up in the morning. I, I mean, last night I couldn't fall asleep. It was like 12.45 when I finally fell asleep. I get up 6 o'clock. I hated me. I hated my life. I hated the day. I, it, everything. I mean, come on. But we, we allow our feelings to govern our faith. I want to take you here. I don't want to go there. I don't like that. That doesn't make me feel good. I'm not comfortable in that setting. We get the comforter because we're made uncomfortable. I mean, you've heard this a hundred times from 60 better preachers than me, but it's a really good line. The comforter is sent to us to bring us comfort because he intends to lead us through uncomfortable circumstances. Our feelings are not God's primary concern. Us walking upright is God's primary concern. When we walk upright and we lose our lives, we will then find it and our feelings catch up. But most of the time, from my experience, where he leads us, our feelings don't want to go. I remember the Lord challenging me about this, kept coming up over and over and over, uh, encourage one another, encourage one another, encourage one another. At the time, you know, I grew up up here, so I was a guy, and um, guy, no, seriously, guys don't encourage each other. Um, you know, if you love a guy, you ridicule him even more so than other guys. That's how, I mean, come on, right? I mean, it's like if you like someone, you're like, hey, man, good to see you. And if you love someone, you're like, hey, you idiot, what's going on? And if you really love someone, you'll mock them publicly in front of everyone. Because that's just how we roll. And it's extremely unhealthy. And it's destructive, not only for you, but for the guys that you're doing that to. And so God starts going, hey, encourage one another, encourage one another, encourage one another. And so I'm like, I don't want to go there. I like ridiculing people. It's safer. And so he starts to challenge me, and my feelings were terrified. 
And I remember the first few times that I'd go to encourage a friend and I'd just tell him like, hey, you know, you're a big deal to God. And I would sob almost uncontrollably, telling him something good about him. That didn't feel good. I didn't want to be there. But few things had more impact in changing me than doing something I didn't feel like doing. God's not, he's not looking for our feelings and what we want to do. He's wanting us to obey him and act uprightly, and our feelings will catch up as we change. Our minds are renewed and our emotions are made whole. God the Father makes it a point to discipline us. His name is Jealous. It's a mark of his love, and it's a word of encouragement that he disciplines us. Because it leads to our growing to know him and our becoming like him, like our dad. So we as parents, both spiritually and naturally, must also grow comfortable receiving and giving discipline. Understand that the discipline of another or yourself is intended for them or you to grow. As I mentioned earlier, it is a sign of an orphan to be unable to receive discipline. And it is the sign of a son to seek it. Proverbs 13.1 If you find yourself being disciplined and pushing away, you need to be aware immediately that there's something wrong with how you view God as a, as a father and how you respond to discipline. Immediately. If you can't believe that God is disciplining you or can or would want to, and that he's not actively doing it, you need to repent and seek him and ask him to write your heart. So to close, we're going to just take a look at Proverbs 2. Because um, it, it talks about um, the seeking after wisdom and uh, the fear of the Lord. you got your Bible, just open up and follow along. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, if, so he's given us a condition right away. My son, if you receive my words and you treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, that means God, teach me because I don't, I don't get it, but I'm going with you no matter what. I want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it, but I'm going along no matter, no matter what. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity, guarding the paths of the just, and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness, and justice, and equity, and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, 
who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you, and he goes on to talk about all the other good stuff, it's a condition. The blessing, the abundant of the upright is a condition on how we respond to his discipline in his word and through the circumstances of life. And it falls on us. So I present it this way because we can't start talking about how we discipline children or anyone else if we don't understand how to receive discipline ourselves from our Father. So this is a really important one uh, because next semester, many of the things that, um, that you think are going to be challenged and you're going to need to be able to get in the Scripture and find out what does it really say. And uh, so if you can't examine the scripture and have the way you think change, you won't be able to examine anything truthfully, honestly, and there's no chance for being led into the paths of the upright. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll wrap it. Next week's Thanksgiving, so don't come here. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for your discipline, both through difficulty, prosperity, through your word, through your voice, through the supernatural. Father, thank you that you have put leaders here who speak truth, they speak your word, they love uh, what you're doing, they love you, and they love the people that you've set around them. And so, Father, for each of us, I ask that we would be more receptive to your voice, that we would be more aware of your prodding when you're causing us to change and to think differently and newly. We want to become more holy, more like you. So, Father, give us humble hearts that are willing to press forward with every ounce of energy and yet to adjust our course when we find out we've done wrong. We love you, and we thank you, Father. Amen.